Thank you for this day that you've given us. It is a gift. And we, in your Son and by your Spirit, will rejoice and be glad in it. Joy is a gift, but it's also a task and a command. Father, we pray that you would give us grace to rejoice this morning, even as the Word of God comes to us in power and in the Holy Spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. On August the 5th, the headline article for New York Magazine was titled, The Rise of Scandal Insurance in Hollywood. The premise is that major Hollywood movie companies are buying what they call reputational insurance for their major stars, lest the investment in a major project be destroyed by some kind of so-called reputational or disgrace event, which we are seeing often today with our Hollywood celebrities. In other words, it's not just the individual brand that's affected by scandal, it's all of the entities associated with that brand and hence the need for insurance. Hollywood is dependent on celebrities being free of scandal. And as a result, relational or reputational insurance is now being included in the cost of future projects. It's quite remarkable, the times in which we live. Well, I can't imagine what the cost of reputational insurance would have been for our heroes in the Bible. In fact, one of the many evidences of the trustworthiness of Scripture is its honest portrayal of its heroes. From Noah to Abraham to the disciples in the Gospels, Scripture does not hesitate to reveal the scandals and the sins of its heroes. No other religious tome would dare reveal the human weaknesses and sins of its heroes. But keep in mind, the Bible isn't ultimately trusting in mere man. That's why the Bible would do that. It is trusting in a God-man, Messiah. David was a Messiah. He was the anointed one. That's what Messiah means in Hebrew. He was a Messiah, but his failures continue to drive home, we need someone greater. We need a better Messiah. We need a Savior. Not the least which, what we see from our passage in 1 Samuel 27. What we see in David as this chapter opens up. In fact, as we saw last week, we see the crisis immediately in verse 1. The kind of crisis that communicates that David is not the ultimate Messiah. Notice we in verse 1, Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel. 
and I shall escape out of his hand. Now, the writer here makes no editorial comment on David's sudden new despair. It does come out of nowhere. Just utter despair. But it's clear at this point that David was believing the lie that many people believe. That he was safer with the world than he was with God. And hence this impulse to flee to Philistine, to the Philistines. The puzzling thing here is that David now imagines that Saul will prevail. In spite of the fact that his experience up till now could be summarized all the way back in chapter 23, verse 14, where it says, And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. That's a nice summary of David's experience up to this point. What made David now think that God's protection, provision, his power had an expiration date, it's quite puzzling, isn't it? Obviously, he had forgotten Jonathan's last words to him back in chapter 23, verse 17, where Jonathan says, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king. Evidently, he had forgotten the great providences where God had delivered him from Saul and God's provision for him during this time. So how does David come to the conclusion that he comes to here at the very beginning of chapter 27? Well, as we saw last week, some of you weren't here. It'd be nice to review this. David said in his heart, he said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. What we say to our hearts has a transforming influence to direct our life's trajectory. It absolutely does. So if we say to our heart, God is not in control. God is a holdout. God is not good. God doesn't care about me. It will make a difference in your life. Or if you say, as David wrote in Psalm 56, God is for me. God is for me. And I know greater than David why he's for me or how he expresses that in his son. God is for me. The God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his wisdom. That God is for me. The God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his goodness. That God is for me. That is trajectory changing for a person. And so the issue is that David began to propagandize his heart. That's the issue. Now what is propaganda? It's misleading biased information that can make a puppet out of the one who hears it and believes it. That's what propaganda, in every war you see propaganda. Especially you see it in the second war, uh, second war that uh, 
Germany pronounced on the world. Hitler's whole method was propaganda with his people. But we do that too. We do it to ourselves. We constantly talk to ourselves, and what we tell ourselves, what we tell our hearts, what we tell our souls changes everything. We either tell ourselves the true objective word that God has given us. Now, if you have a closed Bible, that's impossible. It's, it's absolutely impossible. Because God speaks to us by his word. So we either tell our hearts the truth of the word of God, or we propagandize our hearts with fallen reason, fallen emotions, and filtered partial facts. That's what we do every day. And sadly, David knew how to rightly speak to his soul. We looked at Psalm 42 last week, and that's not a psalm that David wrote. But listen to Psalm 62, which he did write. In verse 5, For God alone, O my soul. So he's speaking to his soul. He's preaching to his soul. David recognizes here that you can, you can give propaganda to your soul or you can give truth to your soul. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. Who's he preaching to? He's preaching to himself. He's preaching to his soul. My fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Maybe he wrote this before 1 Samuel 27. Maybe he wrote it afterwards. I don't know. I tend to think it was written afterwards. But the reality is, David knew how to preach to his soul. And what he preaches here in Psalm 62 is the attributes of God, the promises of God, the greatness, the glory of God. If you don't do that, the alternative is you end up in a, a propaganda mission. Here in 1 Samuel 27, it's pure propaganda. It's pure propaganda based on fallen reason, based on, based on fallen emotion and partial, filtered truth. And hence the collateral damage in verses 2 and 3. Verse 2, so David arose, went over. Many scholars believe when, when that text says he went over, that's communicating something. It's kind of a, a double entendre. He, not only did he go over into the land of the Philistines, he went over. He went over existentially, philosophically, religiously. He went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, 
Nabal's widow. There's no evidence that David sought the face of God on this. There's no evidence that he went to the priest. There's no evidence that he sought the law. There's no evidence that he is being guided by God here. And he was not counting the cost of living with the Philistines. And all the devastation that that would lead to. And from another perspective, it would be a vain pursuit on our part if we were to search for any Israelite that left the land of promise and sought the care of the ungodly where it did not end up being a snare for them. Now, one example you might think of is when Joseph and Mary takes Jesus to Egypt, but there they were not seeking the care of the ungodly, they were seeking the care of the elect exiles in Egypt. But think about Jacob's sons. They go into Egypt, yes, they find food in Egypt, but the ultimate result was 400 years of enslavement. Earlier, Abraham, there was a famine in land in Genesis 12, and, and he, he goes, he takes Sarah, and he goes to Egypt. And what happens there? He, he almost compromises his wife's life, purity, and honor. It ended up being devastating for Abraham. And then how about his nephew, Lot? That's a very interesting case study. In Genesis 13, it says that he set up his tent next to Sodom. It's like he wanted the land, but on his terms. So he set up the tent, not quite in Sodom, but just next to Sodom. But then in Genesis 14, just one chapter later, we read that he's dwelling in Sodom. And then when you get to Genesis 19, he is sitting in the gates of Sodom. He's an upstanding leader in Sodom. Sin's regression. Sin's devolution. Sin never remains stagnant. And the impact of his regression is remarkable. Just Let me just offer you one example. Besides the fact Peter says his righteous soul was tormented by the things he saw and heard in Sodom. One other severe consequence is his daughters married men of Sodom. In keeping with that last point, note that David's decision here to go to to the land of the Philistines did not just affect him. Again, note verse 3 again. David lived with Achish at Gath. He and his men, every man with his household, David with his two wives. With wives and with children, this could have been some two to 3,000 people that he took with him to the land of the Philistines and they, including David, would have had to have placed themselves under the authority of Achish, the king of the Philistines. And why would I say that? Because you don't live with a king except on his terms. 
That's just the reality of things. Of course, that's true of the Christian life too. You're not in the kingdom of God unless you're living under the terms of the king. You don't get to set the terms. But that's true of all kings, including pagan kings. If we think our individual personal compromise does not have an effect on our families, you are deeply mistaken. Every person in here who's living with compromise, whether you're aware of it or not, there is collateral damage. It has a devastating effect on your family. And where did he go? Again, it's remarkable. This is the very place, Gath, where he had to feign insanity in order to survive the first time he went. Sin makes you stupid. It was also the place where Goliath was from. He had killed their champion. He had beheaded their champion. And here he is in Gath. So how could he now believe that he could flee safely to such an ungodly place? Well, oftentimes with our sin, we see that there is an initial consolation that comes with it. And we see the consolation in verse 4. And when it was told... Saul, that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Saul no longer sought David. David's escape from Saul, his exile from the land, apparently has been successful. Saul will no longer pursue him. And maybe David and his men had their first good night of sleep in years. Because even though this is the land of the Philistines, it beats a cave, right? So David's plan works. Or does it? At what cost did it work? There's no mention here of God's grace. There's no mention here of God's mercy, God, of, of God's providence, of God's deliverance here. And earlier in the text, in 1 Samuel 25, it had mentioned the inappropriateness of, of David seeking to save himself by his own hand. In light of those considerations, I think the first result of David's decision to go to Gath was that it created a false sense of security. Instant relief. Saul no longer sought him. How many of us, when we are tested, when we are tempted, we are tried, instead of persevering in faith, trusting for God's provision, His grace, His mercy, in the midst of the temptation, we make an idol of instant relief. We make an idol of instant comfort. Saul no longer sought him. But at what cost? The second result, I think, 
of his compromise here is found in verse 5. And I think it drives home the delusion of the false security we see in verse 4. Verses 5 to 12, we see the compromise. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? Since when did David care about finding favor with a pagan king? And David actually calls himself Achish's servant. Why should your servant dwell in the royal city? And clearly, in David's mind, this wasn't just a vacation or a short visit. He is not planning on staying for a short time. Notice the language here. He wants to dwell there. He wants to dwell. And that's, I think, the third result of his going to the land of the Philistines. A long period of compromise. Verse 6, so that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and 14 months, or, or four months, 16 months. 16 months. Akesh here was happy to provide accommodations for David. He was hoping that David would forget his faith and embrace the way of the Philistines. That's how the world operates. That's how the evil one operates. That's how our flesh operates. And David did. He did. He forgot his faith for 16 months. He compromised for 16 months. Compromise. And the application there is endless. It's endless. I can't even offer you examples of that. You know what they are. It would take months. Compromise creates momentum. It creates a cycle that's difficult to escape. Generally, it begins behind closed doors and then extends into your marriage. But it never stays stagnant. It never stays stagnant. And as David chooses this lifestyle, one compromise leads to another. First of all, a duplicity begins to show itself. The American Heritage Dictionary defines duplicity as a deliberate deception in behavior or speech. Duplicity. Deliberate deception. In behavior or speech. But even with his sin, even with his deception, we see, we see mercy here. 
we see providence at work. It turns out that Ziklag, the city given to him here, was a town that had been allotted to the tribe of Judah during the distribution under Joshua. Joshua 15, or, or Judges, or Joshua chapter 15, verse 31. You can look that up. Ziklag had been given to the tribe of Judah. David was from the tribe of Judah. But it had never been captured. It had never been captured because the Israelites did not carry out their mandate known as the harem. I think you see here God's love for his people in spite of his people. Speaking of in spite of behavior, notice in verse 8. Now David and his men went up. And this is tough to read. I'll just be honest with you. It's tough. Bible is brutally honest. There's only one Savior in the Bible. There's no mere man. David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. The writer here does not comment on the moral quality of David's actions. He's just giving us the information. It's ambiguous. But I do want you to keep in mind these groups mentioned here were under the ban commanded by the Torah, the law, the Pentateuch, in particular Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 20, verses 16 and 17. God had given this land, the Geshurites, the land of the Geshurites, to Judah's tribe in the allotment when the land had been apportioned. But Israel had failed to take control of that region. You can read about that in, in Judges. And so the, the people of that land became a snare to the Israelites. That's what Judges is all about. Saul had also failed. We saw that in chapter 15. And so David is doing what Israel and Saul had failed to do. And as a side, remember when we looked at chapter 15, that Israel's conquest in the land was never based on ethnic grounds. It was not ethnic cleansing. It was not genocide. It was based on the fact that God judges degenerate cultures. That's what he does. The problems with the groups that we read about God ordering them to be destroyed was that they were integrating their heinous sins into the very fabric of society and it was having a detrimental, disastrous impact on the nations round about. And so God ordered the elimination of these people groups for two main reasons. The punishment of accumulated sin... And God always punishes sin. And the elimination of their gangrenous effects. In other words, there comes a point when the Lord says enough to every vile people group. Including Israel. The same thing happens in, to Israel. In fact, 
No one is judged more severely, more often in the Old Testament than Israel. But it's also a promise to every nation, which is sobering to us, isn't it? In a society that applauds abortion, the redefinition of marriage, and anything goes but truth, objective truth. That's the only thing that doesn't go in our culture. It's a horrifying thought. Having said that, it does not appear that David was commanded by God to do this. I believe David is out of the will of God. And it's possible that David was, believed he was acting according to the command given him through Moses. But it's just not clear. It's just not clear. Maybe he was seeking to appease his conscience. I've thought about that. Oftentimes, we seek to please God in one area in order to mollify him, to appease him in another area of our life that we know is disobedient. That's just primitive religion, isn't it? And so there are areas of a person's life that is not under the lordship of God, and they insanely believe that by obeying him in this area, they can satisfy him over here. It's just insane. Maybe that's what David is doing. It's just the text doesn't tell us. But verse 11 indicates that this ban policy that had been given to Israel, that had been given to Saul, was not primarily his motivation. And that's why I don't give David a real break here. Verse 11. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom. All the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. Several years before David had Uriah the Hittite murdered to cover up his sin with Bathsheba. He kills these men and these women to cover his tracks. The roots of sin must be dealt with or they come back with greater strength. And his policy of extermination is protecting him, right? It's protecting him. At least he thinks it is. He thinks that if I kill everyone, they won't be able to come back and tell Akish what I'm doing. That he's playing a double game. In fact, what he did was that he killed, he had only those killed who were common enemies with Judah or Israel and the Philistines. And Achish trusted him. He trusted him, believing that, that David was actually, actually uh, alienating himself from his own people. Notice verse 12. And Achish trusted David 
thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. David was coming back time after time and saying, it was against the Negeb of Judah, against the Negeb of the Jeremilites, or against the Negeb of the Kenites, verse 10. Achish thought he was killing fellow Israelites, when actually what he was doing was destroying common enemies. He was planning for his future, in other words, and living a life of deception. And that's how chapter 27 ends. Achish said, he shall always be my servant. This chapter puzzles us. It, 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 it shocks us. It haunts us. It, it, it dismays us. It's almost like we're reading about an alien that has taken over the David we love. And in a sense, it is. It's an alien. That shows the difference that what you preach to your soul every day makes on your life. That's what this whole chapter communicates to us. Contrast this David, the David of 1 Samuel 27, with the David of Psalm 34. Now, why would I say Psalm 34? Because Psalm 34 was written after his first voyage to Gath. And what he had learned there, Psalm 34, verse 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Verse 13, turn away from evil, do good, seek peace, pursue it. Verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears towards their cry. But the great psalmist has writer's block in 1 Samuel 27. There's no psalms written during this time. The Psalm 34, David, exalted in his God. He walked by faith. The promises of God was the sermon he preached to his soul. The first Samuel 27, David, walked by craftiness, manipulation. He believed it all depended on him. Self-salvation. And first the last verse of chapter 27 ends with Achish swept up by this craftiness. In chapter 28, we'll go into the verse, two verses of chapter 28. As a result, begins with these alarming words. Here's the consequences. It boils down. Here's the consequences of this time of compromise. Chapter 28, verses 1 and 2. Haunting. Horrific. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. Israel's future king, anointed by God to be their king, is now being enlisted to fight against Israel. 
David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And David, Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. David had lied to Achish, and now he has to live that lie. And it started with soul propaganda. It started with soul propaganda. Soul propaganda will lead to devastation, and you will take others with you. Closing thoughts. Our perspective on life each day largely depends on what sermons we preach to our hearts. And there's only one sermon you can preach to your heart if your Bible's closed. That's just the reality. And it's a sermon of propaganda. Think about another example, Psalm 73. The, the psalmist, it's not David, the psalmist is observing the prosperity of the wicked. And like you and I, he gets envious. The wicked never seem to have any struggles. I love God, I love his people, and I live in the midst of struggles. And he is envious of the wicked. Until verse 17 says, Until I went into the sanctuary of the Lord, and then I discerned their end. You see what happened? The, the, the psalmist is preaching propaganda to his heart. And then he gathers with the people of God, and the word of God is opened, and he's transformed. A second thought as we close. David's intentional exile to the Philistines without any evidence of seeking God, is a great example of Proverbs 14, 12. There's a way that seems right unto man. And what is right unto man? It's the way we, it's our, it's our fallen reason. If you think you can reason your way to a wise path, you have no doctrine of sin. You have no doctrine of sin. What the doctrine of sin of Scripture teaches us is that your mind is fallen. It's depraved. It's depraved. It's polluted. And you have complete inability to reason your way to the wise path. It's what theologians call total inability. There's a way that seems right unto man, but that way therein leads unto death. This is an example to that. Yes, if David had stayed in the land, it would have required persevering faith. It would have required steadfast faith in God and in God's promises. But in doing so, he would have seen glorious displays of God's new morning mercies. Sweet providences. Sweet provisions that he missed by going to the land of the Philistines. Third concluding thought. David's foolishness in fleeing Israel, 
is seen in the geography of salvation under the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant teaches us that God's atoning sacrificial system was localized to the Ark of the Covenant, to the tabernacle, in, in due time to the temple that David's own son would build. Eventually, in fact, David would capture Jerusalem and Solomon would build that temple in Jerusalem and salvation would come only through those who came to where God atoned for sins through the sacrificial system and through the mediation of the prophets and the priests. And all of this foreshadows the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in whom God dwells among his people. And that's why the apostles can say in Acts 4 verse 12, there is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved than the man Christ Jesus. That's why Jesus could say, I am a way, no, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And to flee to some other salvation when despair, stress, temptation comes. And that's what you're doing. So let me just give one obvious example in this perverted culture. To be tempted sexually and to flee to porn or what other sexual immorality you may be tempted to flee to is to flee to a salvation that is replacing Jesus Christ at that moment. And if that is your pattern of life, there is no biblical evidence that you have assurance for salvation. So whether it's a struggling marriage, career disappointments, financial stresses, empty nest gloom, or persecution for your faith in the workplace, in the school, by abiding in Jesus through persevering faith as David should have remained in Israel and by preaching the promises of God in Jesus Christ to our souls, we can be sure of flourishing even in a world opposed. Indeed, David at this point in time is the Messiah. He's the anointed one at this point in history, but he's not the ultimate Messiah. But wisdom demands that we put our trust in the one in whom he points. And with the one in whom he points, the greater David the seed from the stump of Jesse, the Lord Jesus Christ, there's no lies with him. There's no deception with him. There's no callous scheming, just righteousness, just faithfulness. And so what you are to do daily, what we are to do daily is to replace all that daily bombardment of soul propaganda that we're so naturally prone to with that, with that truth. If then you have been raised with Christ, set your mind on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth, for you have died, 
and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That is the truth your soul needs every day of your life. Let's pray.